Hi, this is Marnie with Maxip and Marnie, a podcast that I get to do where I interview people that I attend church with. I go to Our Savior's Lutheran Church in Naperville, Illinois, and we have two campuses. Um, and today we have a new friend with us. Hello, Ruth. Hi, Hi. Marnie. But do you know Ruth's a- last name? No, I don't, actually. If you say that, I do. As soon as you say it, I'm going to know it. I should make you guess that. Okay. She's on the church council. We were on the call team together for mm-hmm. Pastor John. It's not Garricky. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Ruth Garricky. Ruth, 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 Ruth. Nelson. Nelson. I knew that. I knew that. Um, so, Ruth, tell us about you. You um, grew up where? Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is a lot about why I am who I am. Why? Why do you say that? Well, Cedar Rapids is a city of about, it was about of 100,000 uh, people. It's an uh, industrial city. But the most interesting thing about it is that it's a interfaith hub and has been for a very long time. Uh, it is, in Iowa, you have the traditional Protestant towns and Catholic towns, but Cedar Rapids is different in that you have both pro, uh, Catholic and Protestant um, denominations there, yeah. but you also have a synagogue. But the, the most interesting thing uh, is that you have the oldest mosque in the United States is there, which was built in 1933, which is called the Mother Mosque. And why? Um, what was the draw there? Was there an academia or a company there that was from? You know, the interesting story is the Lebanese Christians, which founded a couple different uh, Orthodox churches in Cedar Rapids, came in the 1890s, and they welcomed their Lebanese Muslim neighbors to come. And these two groups have always worked together. They have the same food, they have the same um, language, that sort of thing. And they ran the neighborhood grocery stores in Cedar Rapids. And so growing up, I can't tell you whether a neighborhood grocery store was run by a Christian or a Muslim. But that was the uh, interesting thing about Cedar Rapids and it has made a big difference in my life. Yeah, very impactful. Hyper aware of your faith and hyper open to others, do you feel like? Uh, Maybe not exactly when I was growing up, but Cedar Rapids up until 9-11 was a a great example of just people getting along with each other for all the right reasons. 9-11, of course, challenged that. And I think it's it's gotten back to its... uh, you know, good roots uh, in recent times, but um, it, it wasn't anything that we paid attention to, we just lived. So, uh, and, and the fact that I went to school with Muslim kids uh, has had now a powerful effect on me as an adult, particularly an adult after 9-11. Because? Uh, because, uh, you know, you see all the the crazy things that get say said about Muslims, and and so uh, initially, when I was thinking about retiring, I thought, well, 
uh, you know, I ought to work in Christian Muslim relations. You know, that was my initial draw. But um, I found very quickly that churches weren't interested. You know, I, I was able here at Our Saviors to do a few things and a couple other Lutheran churches. But on the whole, Christian churches really are arm's length uh, about wanting to find out more about Islam. And so I was running into one brick wall after another uh, until I actually did retire and Pastor Tom, uh, and I think he needed the help, encouraged me to help support uh, a dance troupe coming through here, Celebration, uh, doing the homestays and hospitality, and that's how I got connected to Bright Stars of Bethlehem. And Bright Stars of Bethlehem is what? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Bright Stars of Bethlehem is a multi-denominational group out of Christmas Lutheran Church in, in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is located six miles south of Jerusalem. And it's, it's one of six Lutheran churches, uh, Christmas Lutheran churches, one of six Lutheran churches in the Holy Land. Uh, there's uh, churches in uh, Jerusalem, Beit Zahur, Beit Jalah, Amman, Jordan. We also have a church uh, at Bethany Beyond the Jordan, which is the Jordanian uh, baptismal site. Uh, Lutherans have a hospital on the Mount of Olives. So there, uh, and four of the congregations have schools. And each in each of these four schools, the majority of the students are Muslim. Uh, definitely, it's definitely serving the Christian community, which is getting smaller and smaller. But we're also a good example of the second commandment. And so this, ha I found my home in terms of, it feels like I found my calling in working uh, with this because I'm able to, to both um, help ensure that the Christian community uh, survives and thrives in the Holy Land. Uh, we have the real potential that there might not be Christians in the Holy Land. Uh, right now, the Christian population is less than 2%. So um, back up just a smidge. So um, I'm super ignorant. And in Bethlehem, and you said, is six miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And those both of those cities are in what country? Well, that's where the politics gets uh, extraordinary. You have Jerusalem, which historically has been deemed an international city. But now, uh, with our current politics and administration, if you recall, Trump has moved the embassy to uh, Jerusalem. And this is a very controversial thing for Palestinians. So Be Jerusalem is in? Well, right. Uh, Israelis think it belongs in Israel, and Palestinians think it belongs in Palestine. So Israel and Palestine are countries that are like Iowa and Illinois. Not exactly. Um, yeah. So our idea is that, like, for instance, a country should just be a circle or a square. or Self-contained. Um, right. But um, there are um, areas of the land 
where essentially it would be like an island on land that would should belong to uh, Palestine, for instance, that the walls that are continually being built or pushed. Um, it, it, so long story short, uh, we start 1942. 48. 48. Um, there was a map that was drawn out about what Israel and Palestine should have looked like that looks dramatically different today, which is a very political um, and religious, well, religious, but mainly political uh, fighting issue on why that map has changed. Right. And, And the great news for Lutherans is the church is exactly where it needs to be. In this most difficult, most contentious place, the church is educating people it's it's having a real presence, uh, you know, supporting the right the right measures. We we have a major hospital on the uh, Mount of Olives, so we are taking care of the people who need to be taken care of most cancer patients. Uh, it, it's a very proud story for Lutherans. So and when a very you difficult s- story. Yeah, so when you said 2% are Christian, what are the other percentages? Well, the uh, let me back up a little Please. bit. In, in 1948, uh, Christians probably accounted for about 10%. So always a small percentage. Yes, but 10% is a, is a sizable minority. Uh, and this was one of the places in historic Palestine whether it was under the Ottoman rule or it was under the British, um, it was one of the places where Muslims and Christians, for the most part, got along pretty well. But when the partition came and you had the influx of, of Israeli refugees or Israeli Jewish refugees coming from Europe and around the Middle East, it basically, basically became a, um, a conflict over land. And so in 1948, when the United Nations uh, agreed to this map that the uh, Palestinians did not agree to, uh, you know, uh, then there was a major conflict that, that broke out. And... 750,000 people, uh, Palestinians, you know, depending on your politics, were either ethnically cleansed or ran away. Uh, But the one thing we know that everybody agrees to is that they were not allowed to return to their land. And so between four and 500 Palestinian villages were leveled. their churches, their mosques, their cemeteries, they're gone. And so uh, the Palestinians became refugees uh, and, and they moved into areas in Lebanon and Jordan, uh, what is now the West Bank. And so right now, uh, very proudly, we have two uh, Lutheran churches that are designated as uh, refugee churches, and uh, meaning these churches came out of that what is known as the catastrophe, the Nakba, N-A-K-B-A, and so we have a Lutheran church in Ramallah, and we also have a Lutheran church in Amman, Jordan, 
and both of them are officially designated as refugee churches. And so I've been uh, to the church of uh, Hope Church. I've been to their school uh, in Ramallah. That was part of our just trip. Uh, and it's an amazing school that the ELCA is helping to fund along with the EU. So a, a very positive story. I showed her the 1948 yep. map. So essentially when you look at this, you can see that the green parts essentially would be Palestinian uh, areas. Jerusalem is right there on essentially one of the borders, but it's not it, it's done in chunks. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's it's really complicated. It's very complicated. And so I'm getting more so every day. And getting more so every day. I want to come back to your travels there because um, I think it's interesting. But I want to scoot back to you growing up in Cedar, um, Cedar Rapids, Rapids, Iowa. Mm -hmm. And you grew up in what kind of a family? Who did you live with? Um, my dad uh, was a teacher and a coach. He was uh, a well-known person in our community. Uh, my mother uh, was a, a teacher by training. Her family, despite the fact they had lost everything by, by some miracle, they sent her to college in 1928. Your mom My went mother. to college in but 1928. She, was it a women's college? No, or? it was a teaching school, the same one that my dad went to. Uh, but uh, she got a two-year teaching certificate and taught in uh, country schools. But that was the time when you got married. You had to stop working. It wasn't you got pregnant. It was when you got married. Uh, and so she stopped working. Uh, but uh, she was a really a small-town uh, kind of gal. Uh, you know, she was never, they moved to Cedar Rapids, which I think in her time, her head, uh, was the big city. But she was really more comfortable. She was an introvert, mm. and my dad was an extrovert. Okay. Very well known. And who were the siblings? Were you an only I child? I have an older sister and a younger brother. I'm the so middle child. So you're the middle. I'm we were the just reading these. Yes, you are. I'm the peacekeeper. <laughs> so you're close in age to each other? No, no. Uh, uh, we're four years apart. Okay, so a decent chunk. And so then after high school, where did that lead you? Uh, I went to the University of Iowa. My parents were able I mean, my dad never made more than $16,000 a year as a teacher. $16,000 a year. But he always had other jobs. And uh, you said coaching. Coaching. He, he had all these part-time gigs. Uh, and, uh, and so they sent us all away to school. And that was at a time when they could mostly afford to pay for it, uh, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. So I had a, a few loans when I left school, but not a lot, not like today. And what did you study when you were there? I studied um, American intellectual history, believe it or not. I am a nerd. Yep. I like it. I like history. <laughs> so that's what it was. When you say intellect, what does that mean? Like Intellectual, I, thinkers, uh -huh. uh, people who... Who think and, and so you were studying the history of certain people more Americans, than events Americans uh -huh. at, at the time mm -hmm. and 
um, this was before the women's movement, but I knew I wanted to work, uh, and I knew I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what it was, and so. Who is a person that inspires you from um, learning about all of those people in history? Who is a person that you're like, this is a person that stands out to me, that I learned a lot from when I studied them? Well, it would have to be generally my father. My father, uh, as I said, he was a community leader, but he was a mover and a shaker from the standpoint of, of having gone through a lot of hard times. He, um, you know, he ended up in, uh, during the Depression, he had college loans, and he had ended up uh, working in a factory in Chicago and uh, without a union. And he was always talking about how badly those workers were, were treated and the fact that there were families living under bridges and, and whatever. So he um, set the tone. We talked politics at the dinner table every night. And he was very well read he, he's the first adult I, I know to be opposed to the Vietnam War. It took him a while to get there, but he did. And, and so... He, yeah, so exciting ideas and... Oh! Yeah, and you were always allowed to voice your opinion oh, or questions? yes, yes, yes. Um, so that was highly encouraged. And, and he read broadly. He, he read the political spectrum. Uh, and, and so... Something was always stirring mm -hmm. in his thought process. So I'm like that, too. Yeah. So when you graduate college, what year is it? I got my, um, my B.A. in 1969. But in the meantime, I had met Scott R. Nelson. And so magically, I stayed to get my master's <laughs> in 1970. And... Uh, uh, so, uh, you know. What was your master's in? Uh, it was in some, it was a teaching degree. Okay. But, um, so I got a job teaching. Uh, but I knew very quickly I was not meant to be a teacher. Okay. Uh, and the good news is that um, after uh, we got married, uh, I always lose time in the dates and everything but uh, we got married a few 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 years later and after he left the air force he was by the way his story is he was going to be drafted he was number 24 in the draft for the vietnam for war. the vietnam war and you got to remember here at this juncture i had lost four guys out of my high school class so this was yeah very Scary, personal. Very yeah. personally scary. So my husband was able to be an Air Force officer. And so we got married the last year. He was in the Air Force. And when he left the Air Force, I knew, you know, I couldn't get a teaching job at that time when we moved to Detroit. And I really didn't care because I wasn't meant to do it. Mm -hmm. I'm just not that good at it. Yeah. And, and so I got... This was when at the, U, the United Nations had the Year of the Woman, and this was when women were entering business. And, and so 
you said, please open the door, I will come in. And I did. So, yeah. So I, the, the great news is I got a job as a claims adjuster. And uh, at the beginning, I was a multi-line claim adjuster, but, uh, you know, worked more toward workers' compensation. And, and then I spent 45 years doing that. Now, I thought you were in HR, too. Well, yeah. when you manage people, which I did for a very long period of time, you cannot help but get your HR chops. I, you know, I would manage at any given juncture 30 to 40 people that had That's a lot. the whole range of performance and personal and family issues. And, and as a woman during that time, how did you have the esteem or the chutzpah to be able to confront and stand strong and talk to these people and manage them and be the leader? And That's not hard for me. Yeah, why? How do you think you just had that? Just your dad growing up in that home. That's what I would have connected it to. It's like you had a dad that gave you a voice that uh, gave, gave you, you an power. Opinion. Yeah, and, and so hey, when, when you, have a, yeah. you have a job that's calling you to do that um, to make a decision, that yeah, you you do it. And and then and then too, my mother because uh, you know you got to remember that her family lost everything in the depression. So education was extremely important, uh, both on both sides of the family. No one told me not to get educated mm -hmm. because, oh, you, what you really need to do is get married. Mm -hmm. uh -uh. That, that was not talked about in our household. So, uh, uh, you know. Just gave you that I, My grandmother on my mother's side always used to say, Get as much education as you can because they can't take, take it away, from, away you. from you. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, so you were working, and you guys were, I heard, in Detroit. And mm -hmm. would you say that your husband has a big, strong personality that oh, speaks? Yeah. yeah, so both of you were, like, similar <laughs> in that way that you had Do you know that? Scott? I don't know her husband, yeah. Um, but so you two are in Detroit. So how did you end up here? Uh this is home for my husband. Okay. Uh, he grew up in Westmont. And, and so uh, being in Detroit, uh, it was a good place. Both of us did well there. But within 18 months, both of, you know, this is part of our 45 years in corporate America, you know, the slings and arrows and the right sizing and the downsizing and centralizing. Uh, you know, we were impacted by that uh, at various junctures and and so at one point in time it it made sense to move back to Chicago for both of our careers and then our daughter uh, at that juncture was in first grade and we wanted them to be around their grandparent her grandparents so and you have one daughter I have one daughter and then she has three granddaughter or you have three granddaughters yes and they live locally they oh. live in river forest river forest okay i was gonna say oak park mm -hmm. um and so i want to maybe it was a non-story but you're talking about the year of the woman and women didn't have rights and um how you had this education and you had this really important job where you managed people and your husband 
also was living through this with you. And so was that something that was challenging in your marriage or were those roles defined early on or is that? Well, I think one of the things uh, probably that attracted me to Scott was that it, it didn't, he wanted to be married to someone who wanted to work. Uh, and, uh, and so that, uh, you know, kind of mutual mm -hmm. attraction. He always, uh, he was worked as a commission salesman. And so that's rough. That's rough, you know. Uh, you have the slings and arrows, the ups and the downs of, uh, of commission work. Uh, and, and so I, having more of a regular job, you know, was steady, provided that steadiness. Mm -hmm. So uh, that worked for us. But I think also as a uh, taking care of our daughter, uh, you know, he always did the mornings and I did the afternoons. He, he always got her to school, packed her lunch, and then I did the very uncorporate thing this is, and I would say this probably true even now, is I worked seven to four. And, you know, y you've got a lot of decisions that are made in that five o'clock mm. hour, and I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So there was a downside to this, but we were both committed to That's the, awesome, though. That's, that, that's your partnership. That's healthy. Yeah. Right. That you chose your family above. Right. And, and then there was a, a juncture when we, uh, you know, when at various different times our, our different careers fell apart for, uh, you know, different reasons. And, and uh, when I, when our daughter was in kindergarten, I traveled 50% of the time just trying to save my job. And so he picked that up and, and took, and he, he never, you know, uh, we are not, I always say this, but we are not that couple that always does things together. You know, we're kind of two independent people, mm -hmm. but not that we don't do some things together and we always are constantly talking, but, you know, he does his thing and I do my thing. And you bring it back to kitchen table at night and talk about it. Right. Yeah, have those interesting experiences. So does he go to these um, big trips to the Holy Land with you? This was the first time he went. Okay. And so your faith, uh, you said, was a part of your life growing up. Mm -hmm. um, and so was it for your husband or how did you guys incorporate that into your lives working and being busy and... Well, I grew up uh, in a Presbyterian church in Cedar Rapids, and it was a small uh, congregation, but I have real good memories of it. The uh, cornerstone was God is love, and that was the theology of that congre congregation. Mm -hmm. So I was not raised in kind of this strict, rule-driven type of atmosphere. Uh, neither, you know, my my father, who was the major carrier of the faith in the family, or that congregation, they they were just set such a 
fine example. Mm. Uh, and, and so, but the, the interesting piece of this and how I, my journey to becoming a Lutheran is my senior year in college, I lived at the Lutheran Student Center. And I lived there be, probably because I was attracted to because there was just this enormous, wonderful conversation going on there. Uh, and and you were around people that were yeah your kitchen thinking. table experience growing up right so people there you go. to discuss and, and, and it was a carry, ideas carry and, on of yeah. that and I and and so when our daughter by, uh, went to college she went to St Olaf in Minnesota mm-hmm. and that's when we were like okay this is it we're going to be Lutheran and so mm-hmm. the whole family. Became, that's our conversion story, if you want to call it that. Um, I'm thinking back to when you say how like you grew up in this culture of interfaith um, and how that like allows you to be so open. And it, uh, it makes me think like Ted Turner saying one time, if we were all friends with one person in another country, we would never go to war with that country. Um, and so I feel like that gives you this gift of having a relationship based on um, real people, you know, not fear or propaganda. Um, mm-hmm. That sometimes can happen that ruin that. Right. And how right. does that shape your experiences going there now? Well, I think I, um, I think growing up and, and being in a, a place where people were very comfortable questioning things it means my head is questioning things all the time. Mm-hmm. I can't shut it off. Mm-hmm. I just, it just gurgles. There, there's no, very little of me that just assumes. Uh, and so to somebody, you know, we had somebody on and they were talking about how they have doubts and they struggle with things in their faith. But to me, it sounds like that doesn't make you struggle with your faith. It's just that you what you lean into that yes i like it and what like how does it (laughs) i i am very comfortable with gray uh like i have friends here at our saviors that struggle over oh was mary really a virgin Uh you know Uh did this miracle happen or not and i'm like yeah it doesn't matter (laughs) it 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 for me that's uh, just the coming of Jesus is a miracle, and I choose not to get involved in those kinds of conversations because, for me, that's not the essence of my faith. And what would you say the essence is? The essence is, uh, well, a couple of things. You know, speaking of a Holy Land trip, the Beatitudes and the Second Commandment, uh, you know, loving your neighbor. Uh, is it Micah 6, 8? Mm-hmm. Doing justice. So what does the Lord require of you but to do, do, do justice, walk humbly? Wait, yeah. And wait, and walk humbly. Wait, wait, but I'm skipping one. Love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly with yes. your God. So. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I, I think that's why I'm particularly comfortable uh, being a Lutheran and being, uh, uh, you know, in this congregation and traveling to the Holy Land and being part of an interfaith book group and I thrive in that. 
I conversation. And so tell me about the Holy Land. So when you go to Bethlehem or Jerusalem, how much of it gives you a vision of what stories you've heard from the Bible? Is it kept the same way? Does it look like you think it looked then? Is it super different? <laughs> well, what you have in Bethlehem, which is six miles south of Jerusalem, Bethlehem is surrounded by 26 foot high, what looked to me like prison walls on three sides. Bethlehem is on the, the wrong, is on the Palestinian, i.e. the wrong side, okay? So... And the other side is... is Israel. Okay. So, <clears throat> sorry, I need to say here. I'm you showing you a map. You need to Google of, a map. There's a map that you can see, essentially, of Palestine and Jewish lands in 1946, and then the UN plan in 1947, but then basically from 49 to 67, they you had an agreement, but then basically now you can see what it looks like in the year 2000 and how the green has changed. That yes. was, And that the green is where towns like Palestinians Bethlehem. live, and yeah. it's even less than that today. Correct, yeah, that's 20 years old right there. Um, so do you notice, and, and what I want to be careful with too, um, Ruth, because we have friends on all sides of this, this, uh, conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, this isn't necessarily, there, there are Jewish people who disagree with how this map has changed as well. Right. This is not anti-Semitic with what you're, you're no. sharing. It is the reality that essentially walls have been put up that, um, um, make it difficult for Palestinian people to get to and from work from their homes. Uh, and so that's why these pictures, when you see them displayed in our art gallery or the conversations talked about, it becomes difficult because it, it is tense. Um, it is never to um, just it turn it into us versus them, but this is the daily reality that I think we as Americans sometimes ignore mm -hmm. the, the the how hard it is to go to places, how many checkpoints, or how many hours you have to wait through it's these cool. checkpoints just to get to and from. Because you, if you're going from green to white, there, um, there's a wall or there's a checkpoint. So, were you, are you scared in Bethlehem? Not at all. No. Um, so when you go through those walls, that's not like a scary thing. It's well, not... they, you, I always tell folks, it's in the best interest of both the Israelis and the Palestinians for tourism to continue. It's their lifeblood. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, so I'm, they want you who are visiting. They need us to take to a pilgrimage. Feel good. Right, and and when you're uh, amongst the Palestinians, they are extremely friendly, very welcoming. It's very safe in in Bethlehem, and in Israel, you know, it, it's it's very safe. Where, uh, you know, there's there's places where conflicts occur, but generally tourists aren't there. Is is what I would say. Okay, so once you get in the walls of Bethlehem, mm -hmm. does it look like it did two thousand and twenty years ago? It looks. <laughs> the first time I went, I was like, "Holy cow! This looks like an Arab town out of a movie," and that's what it looks like. 
but of course everybody's got a phone yes you know and and um there's uh all sorts of restaurants and you know people trying to sell things that that sort of thing so um it's it's both looks ancient and isn't but the people are very welcoming the food is great what Uh, would be the food like what is the type of food well, it's more of a Mediterranean, Middle Eastern so cuisine. So cucumbers it's, and tomatoes. Oh, exactly. And, yeah. It's very, very healthy. Yes. Very healthy. I always lose weight when yeah. I go there. Yeah. Uh, Just lots of fresh vegetables. All and, the time. Yeah. So could I ask a few questions? Yes, please. All right. I think what would benefit, because we have a lot of people in our church that, that I would say that's the majority of our listeners. Um, you've spoken briefly about where Bright Stars is, mm-hmm. but I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what Bright Stars supports. Okay. And it, especially when you have a political topic like that, maybe this could be a, a healthy way to say, hey, when, when we say supports Bright Stars, when our church uh, supports Bright right. Stars, what does that mean? Okay. How would you, and because then I have some follow-up questions too, to help deconstruct, I think, some of the fears of the other. Would you be willing to say, when we give money to Bright Stars, what is sure. that going to? Sure. Bright Stars was founded out of Christmas Lutheran Church 15 years ago. And it supports uh, a uh, elementary school, a high school, a fine arts university, a culinary school, uh, all sorts of support for the education for tourism. Uh, and it supports programs for people of all ages throughout not only the West Bank, but we also have interfaith programs throughout the Middle East that we are structuring. We've just recently, believe it or not, opened art classes in Gaza. Okay. The other thing, and this goes back to my Presbyterian background, frankly, and why I think I'm like well-suited for this, Uh, is it's a multi-denominational mission. And so Presbyterians are involved, Methodists are involved, Episcopalians. And why are they involved? They're involved because they have little or no presence there on the ground, and Lutherans do. And so the brilliance of this is that we are able to incorporate multi-denominational support, not only from the United States, but from around the world to build and support these missions. And our, our statement is that we want to have Christianity survive and thrive, which gets to the point where we were 10%, we're less than 2% now. And these communities are hanging on the edge. So the school, though, so like when we give funds, it's to scholarships for students to attend any of those schools, essentially, to give them the, the tools to uh, be proud of where they come from mm-hmm. and celebrate, um, to tell their story in different ways. Um, am I Yeah, and, and I kind of equate it to we are teaching uh, the kinds of courses that will eventually, I hope, make Bethlehem into like a Santa Fe. Uh, A Santa Fe where you go for religious pilgrimage, but you also go there for the art. You go there for the culture. You go there for the food. 
And so we are providing the education for people, very practical educations for people to stay there and thrive. Okay, I have two follow-up questions. I'm totally giving you back your podcast. <laughs> Is Bright Stars anti-Semitic, meaning against Jewish people? That That's just like play this game so? Well, uh, you know, I think anyone, frankly, if you work on behalf of the Palestinian and particularly the Palestinian Christians, it's, it's not uncommon uh, to be accused of that. But I, I don't see that at all. I, I am here to benefit the, the Palestinian people and the Palestinian Christians. Yep. And, and so, uh, you know, I tell the truth about what it is I see, but I don't deem that as anti-Semitic. Right. And then so my final one, which I think will help anyone listening then too, is how, um, yeah, what would you just say to anyone that maybe just objects to them bright stars because they feel uncomfortable with this conflict that, again, has been happening for not just decades, but millennia, like the, the over land there? Um, what, what would you encourage them to read or check out? to see that what we're doing is accompanying people to uh, educate the truths of what's happening over there. We're not there. Our saviors is not there to um, state whose side we're on or anything like that, that it's a school. Do you have any recommendation for someone who feels upset about, about this mission? Well, uh, I would say first and foremost, uh, go and see it. I would agree with you. Go and see, uh, because it's transforming. Okay. Uh, once it is to see. Maitri Raheb, who is one of the founders of it, has written numbers of books. And uh, I know Dave Ashcraft, who yeah. uh, was just on our trip, he, he is particularly fond of the book Bethlehem uh, Besieged. I have it right over here, actually. one of Maitri's, uh, you know, uh, first books, but uh, to be frank with you, there's reading and there's seeing, and and true understanding is not going to come by just reading. Nor nor will it happen in like a forty five minute podcast. No. Like, but <laughs> like that's why like some of the questions, Marnie, that you were asking earlier, I'm like, oh my gosh, like there's. I have to show you this map because yeah. it's so complicated. Like it's not just, this is something beyond us. Yes. But I would say that our Lutheran commitment, not just in our Savior's commitment, is that we have friends on uh, both sides. Uh, for us, I think it's, well, and when it comes to uh, Christians in Palestine, like they they are us. Like, and so it's important for us just to be at the table, uh, for us to be aware of not only anti-Semitism, but also um, Islamophobia and, and the things that quickly get tossed out here. Um, we're not going to solve the land issue, but um, we're mm. at the table. Lutherans globally are are, are important. I would also I, say check out the Shoulder to Shoulder campaign, it, not only here in the U.S., but the, the conversations that's happening globally. Um 
uh, Jews and Muslims and Christians, specifically like Lutherans and other denominations, have come together since 9-11 to really, um, one of the commandments is to speak truth about our neighbor. Uh, so it's not just, uh, um, you don't lie, but like really we, we have to walk shoulder to shoulder here in this. And I feel like globally we're doing it really well. There are these tense parts of the world. Um, so yeah, uh, I... I I, I want to make one point, sure. Uh, because one of the amazing things that uh, American Americans, and particularly American Lutherans, don't seem to understand that uh, Palestinian Christians weren't converted. Uh, if you take a look at Acts two, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Arabic is spoken uh, in Acts 2. Uh, these folks, the Palestinian Christians, are descendants of the original, amongst the descendants of the original <coughs> Christians. They are the bedrock of who the church is. And so I view it, if I were speaking to that person whose doubts, I would be like, we need to continue the church in this most meaningful way. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Um, and so do you plan to go again? I hope so. Yeah. I, I always hope so. Uh, you know, let's, let's face it, with our current challenges with yeah. coronavirus and everything, <laughs> it's probably going to be put off a little ways, but... but that is our major focus, is to get people there. Mm -hmm. Because once you're there, you cannot unsee it. You can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And experience it. Right. Um, have you traveled much of the rest of the world? Any other areas of the uh, world? We've been. Uh, one of the things when you're married to a commission salesman, you go on sale. You used to go. I think the money is out of that mm -hmm. now. Sure. But Where you would win like a trip. Like yeah, you sold we, this much. Yeah, we went to London and we went to Italy and we went to Bermuda and we went to Puerto Rico. And, 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 and so that was fine, but they were, oh, can I be truthful? I yeah. just say they were always ca corporate gatherings, so they were always a little bit uncomfortable because you had to behave, you know, you couldn't relax. Uh, and so when, since we've been retired, we've been to Sicily and we've been to England and, uh, you know. But really, you just love to go to the Middle East. I love to go to Palestine. Yeah. I, I think for like what I have experienced here, like why do we have so many missions like locally and globally is um, there are people that go to loaves and fishes and it changes their lives. Mm -hmm. it's, you're never the same after right. that. And the same as with Slovakia and Mozambique, right. but Haiti or, or you know, just uh, honestly, it, it, you don't have to travel outside of Naperville. But when, when it's come to mission leaders, their lives are changed so much that then they have to take others. And so you've obviously been bitten by that bug. And, 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 you know, when I think about the people I most admire in my life, a good percentage of them are here at Our Saviors. Ooh, name some. I mean that. Everywhere you turn around, somebody is doing something amazing. Give me two examples. Uh, <laughs> Jan Dusick. Yep. My good friend Jan Dusick, who 
who, you know, makes all this beautiful art happen at Our Saviors. And yet she's involved in Africa. She's involved in Holy Family? Yeah, Holy, Holy Family Ministry family. in North Lawndale. She's involved in Bright Stars. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Do you realize that the Dusick School is, yeah. uh, has over a thousand kids at there that school? There you go. I'm unfamiliar with the Dusick School. So their daughter, daughter. Robin, mm-hmm. um, felt a... I, I don't know how she originally got there... Is it Uganda? I'm trying yeah, to. Yeah, she was she was on a photo safari. Okay. And I've heard the story. I support like Tom every time he does a run for them, but really just felt a calling. And they they they've done so much that like they they've learned from their own mistakes. Like so, you trust certain people, and then you're like, oh no, we have to really have accountability here. They've grown this school in I don't know maybe ten years, maybe more or less, mm-hmm. but like it's. A full commitment to making sure that kids have a good education. And, and this is in Uganda? Um, yeah. It's, I think it's in Uganda. I apologize I to the Dusik no, School if I am wrong. And so she is one of the heroes. Who is somebody else that um, you would highlight? Well, there's, you can find them everywhere you turn around. But, I mean, when you think about the Wentz's work with the uh, Bill and Ann Wentz, with the refugees that now has been taken up by Lee Thompson and Jim Bono. I mean, and, and they're doing, uh, you know, amazing work with these refugees. That's yeah, so impressive. But How I, can many? Go, I can go on and on and on. Yeah, so like that's before, awesome. before they moved, their, their whole basement was just absolutely yeah. filled with things for refugee families because... If not, you'd have to rent a space, and so they converted like <laughs> their own space to be ready. Because when somebody needs something, they need it. You, you know, like, and you can run out to the store and get it. But people were donating, and they, Anne and Bill were constantly collecting, and then a whole team constantly getting it to the right families. That's awesome. But we are surrounded by people who are living out their callings. And, and it's all in different ways. It's, it is tremendously powerful. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad that you're one of them and taking people on these extraordinary adventures. That's pretty awesome. I know that Dave Ashcraft said, oh, you have to have her on. It was, uh, she has such a passion and education for that area. So that's really exciting to me. Yeah. What is your dream for the next five years for your journey? Well, I'm in, I'm in a transition now. Uh, because I, this is my sixth year on church council, so I'm be finishing. So that's been a big responsibility, uh, but I'm ready to move on. And so I, mostly I want to create some space for myself to see what happens. But, uh, you know, I'll continue to go to school. I always go to school. And What do you mean you always go to school? Well, since I've been retired, uh, I go to the Graham School at the University of Chicago. Uh, I don't know about that. What is well, that? Well, the Graham School is a school for the liberal arts. And so now I, I have taken all those things I avoided when I was an undergrad. And so I've read all those nerdy things. Like what? Oh, Plato and Aristotle and Hobbes <laughs> and, you know. And you find it stimulating. I 
find the people. So that that's your major in college, though. Yeah. So that because I, I was going to ask a little bit more questions about that earlier. So you just actually answered that. You, yeah, you're still interested in the people who wrote those things. Well, no, I'm interested in the people that want to talk about those uh-huh. things. Yeah. So within it, it the classroom, oh, the classroom, the, uh, they, the people <laughs> are so interesting, and they come and from those, all over. You, you get fed up. Who <laughs> would you say that classroom is filled with? Your peers, different ages, people who live. Uh, on the north side of Chicago, so uh, that gather around the University of Chicago. So you know, it's there. You got to do your homework because those people are smart. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do your homework, you're not going to look very good. You don't have a voice in the game. Yeah. That's so interesting. What is one of the thoughts or things that you've been studying at the Graham School that you think is a thing to share? You know, something that the... But please I, put the, it in layman's uh, terms. Bishop Curry, our new bishop, I, he was at a Palestine Day at uh, Our Saviors in Arlington Heights on, on uh, Saturday. And I believe this comes from... Ar- it's Aristotle, I think. But uh, Bishop Curry said a version of, we don't know what we don't know. And I'm like, oh, thank you. You know, we all need to be comfortable and not have, create some space to be wrong, mm-hmm. you know, or to just think about things. Don't you think we live in like this time, uh, that what I would title it as like the sin of certainty, especially like with religions. Like, so I agree with you. I'm okay with the gray, but we have people who are just so black and white. Yes. And if you're not there, um, they're offended. And uh, there's so much that we don't know about God, and that's why we're on a faith journey. And but that's that's why I call it the sin of certainty because they think they know everything about God. And for me, there's so much more wonder, and I'm okay with that. That uh, so that's why I like phrases like "we don't know what we don't know" or "I'm comfortable with being in the gray." Yeah. Yeah, and and so I'm really looking forward to hearing from him more. Mm. I was. I was We're working on getting him, him on the preaching schedule for uh, those I listening. was very impressed uh, just initially, and then I had to leave early. So, you know, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Well, I think that is a great way to end and put a cap on it. I think that's a <laughs> perfect bow. I love, uh, yeah, we don't know what we don't know. And so if we can just all take a breath and live in that moment of giving each other some space and grace. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for being on, Ruth. Thank you. You're this was out. easier than I thought. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, that's good for anyone in the future that yes. wants to come. Come on, come on. Well, we and I do. I, I want to remind our listeners that we do have the email maximandmarnie at gmail.com for like, what are you hearing or comments that you have. We'll take those too, but also maybe you know, uh, you know, someone specific like you need to interview so and so we're open to it we we have a schedule but uh we would be willing to hear your ideas clearly i'm going to reach out to jan oh, oh you yeah and i will say i did i had to google it because i would feel awful it is in uh western uganda uh but it's educating children.org we'll give you more information on their school Wonderful. it's really impressive to 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 connect to their story so We'll give them a shout out. And yeah. Jan, Jan so should creative. And we'll have to have them, yeah, her or yeah. him and have them come and share because yeah. it sounds amazing. Someone else you ought to have is a friend of the congregation is Sue Ferran. Oh, totally. Who is you know a, a Bright Stars buddy of mine. Yeah, and Sue actually, so I'll share this with our, our mission partners. Um, Sue 
it's just phenomenal every time we hang her art in the art gallery uh people buy so much of it because it's it's beautiful and they want to hang in their house or their office so i approached her and she's making um gifts for me to take to slovakia and mozambique and any of our mission partners moving forward a gift from our saviors is coming directly from her um i pray that we get to go on these trips Mm -hmm. (laughs) that the coronavirus dies down but um um that's that's our we have a, you'll see a lot of her artwork around people's homes, which is mm-hmm. very cool. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Well, thanks for that tip. She's a great person. All right. Now well, she can't make say no. me a list. Make me a long list, okay, Ruth? Thanks okay. for being out and serving in our church. Thank you. Thanks, Ruth. All right. Bye. Bye, guys.